This is Episode 8 of Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Richard Norton Smith. It starts after this. From, from your personal standpoint, who would you say are your favorite historians um, and or your favorite history books or books that you think people that are interested in listening to what we've been talking about ought to read? Well, it's interesting. Um, being an Anglophile, you know, I've got a, a, a bias. Uh, the, the Brits do biography, I won't say history, because they're two different schools, but they do better biography better than anyone, particularly political biography, politically, author, particularly authorized biography. Here, that would be the kiss of death. I mean, it would just, I mean, you could see the critics understandably rounding on the authorized biographer because it would be seen as, um, well, as what the name suggests. The Brits have a different attitude and a different approach. Um, authorized biography can be and is seen as being every bit as legitimate and intellectually honest as any other form. Another thing that Brits do, uh, the, 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 there's snobbery in this country, frankly, about the academic versus the non-academic biographer. The fact of the matter is, look at, look at the great biographers. Who, see, I insist that biography, great biography, is literature first. Um, if it's unreadable, what is the point of writing a book? Let me interrupt. You're not a PhD. You do not. I'm have not it. a PhD. Barbara Tuckman famously said the best thing that ever happened to her, a history student, was not getting a, a PhD in history because she wanted to write for more than other historians. She wanted to reach a mass audience, but she never condescended to that mass audience. Um, she never dumbed anything down. I mean, you read. I mean, Tuckman is a gorgeous stylist, and while you may disagree with some of her arguments, um, you, you certainly cannot find fault with um, the rigor of her scholarship or the skill and talent of her narrative prose. And to me, that's there's a role model. I mean, to combine an academic's rigor. Uh, to go through those hundreds and hundreds of boxes of paper, you know, to to expose yourself to the views of 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 scholars who may very well disagree, and from whom you can learn something, um, to subject to extra scrutiny the most sensational, you know, there's an old line in the newspaper business that that's a story too good to investigate. Honest biographers, there's no such thing. And I've always taken the tack the more sensational the material, the higher the standard must be to validate it or incorporate it. So, name some historians that you've always admired. And I'm not particularly looking for <clears throat> contemporary, but just people yeah. that you think really know their craft and have known their craft. Well, obviously today, I mean, uh, look at um, David McCullough, um, who has a journalistic background. You know, wrote for American Heritage. I mean, one of the great 
What does it say about popular culture, which to some people is an oxymoron? And that's the problem. What does it say that we don't have American heritage? You know, that as in a this as that, a magazine, the magazine that this <clears throat> incredibly diverse, um, divided um, culture of ours cannot find room for or the resources for American heritage when there is clearly a huge audience out there. Um, and, and David, you know, writes like a dream, um, works incredibly hard at his craft, um, but is also incredibly generous. Um, the Ford book, I mean, I don't mind saying, uh, the Ford book in some ways has its genesis in a lunch I had with David numerous years ago now. We were sitting at the Hay Adams, that wonderfully historic, atmospheric hotel across from the White House, um, uh, where Henry Adams, America's greatest historian, there's someone, uh, once lived. Great, the greatest American Henry historian. Adams, I think, I think, you know, Parkman is certainly, I think Alan Nevins, uh, as you know, Alan Nevins wrote an eight-volume. That's something that's missing today. No one publishes multi-volume anything. Robert Caro is, is in some ways, the exception that proves the rule. Um, there are any number of, of people deserving of that kind of treatment, but the publishing world uh, doesn't permit it. And I don't know, maybe that's good or bad, but, um, you know, I still read Lincoln, Sandberg's Lincoln. I know that it has serious flaws, particularly the, the, the first two volumes, The Prairie Years, which is more poetry than history. Um, but, my God, it's, it's hypnotically readable. Edmund Morris. Uh, to, simply to read Edmund Morris's TR, three volumes written over, critically, over a period, I'm guessing, of 30 years. The third volume is a very different author from the first volume. I mean, I think of Edmund as a, as a romantic, someone uh, growing up who was, for whom T.R. was a magnetic figure. And if you think about T.R.'s life before he became president, I mean, it is. It's the most colorful, larger-than-life um, you know, story that you can think of. And then, in some ways, the presidency almost imprisons him. I mean, um, again, the second volume is, is wonderful, but it's different from the... There's a, a rollicking, swashbuckling quality about the first volume that you literally just cannot put down. And in some ways, it's a young man's book about a young man. And then there's the presidency. And then this, the third volume is... Um, in some ways bleak and unsparing and absolutely honest, intellectually honest and honest in the portrait of a man who's aging fast, who is deprived of power, which is like oxygen to him. And it's a... You, you can do an elegiac book. Patricia, Patricia O'Toole, wonderful 
historian. She has a forthcoming biography of Woodrow Wilson, which I'm sure will be wonderful. She wrote a book about TR's post-presidency that feels very elegiac, not sentimental, but elegy, which is this poignant, almost painful um, sense of sort of what Proust did at, at his best. Edmund's TR in retirement is not at all elegiac. It's it's this it's this aging man with a questing intellect. For example, I I mean, I came away with with much enhanced respect for T.R.'s intellectual qualities, curiosity, um, but a man in some ways corrupted by the need to be not only the center of attention, but to wield power. What do you think of, um, what was it, seven volume series by Dumas Malone, and what would he think if he came See, back? See, it wouldn't be published today. Yeah, but what First would he thing. think of what has happened to Jefferson historically? He wouldn't be happy. Why not? First of all, Carol again being a notable exception to the rule, you don't have to be a genius to conclude if someone cares enough about a historical figure to write six volumes about them, they're probably admirers. It takes a rare writer to rouse himself from his bed every morning for 30 or 40 or more years and say, boy, today I'm going to write about someone I detest. Um, that's the what I call the prosecuting attorney school of biography. Um, and, and, you know, it exists. And no doubt there are gratifications. The funny thing is, I'm, I'm sort of, I don't belong to either school. My sense is, you have an absolute obligation to your subject and to your readers to avoid an agenda, whatever it may be. Uh, and if you have an agenda, at the outset, you better damn well work your way out of it. Um, you're not you're not writing a book to tell the reader what to think. You are as objectively and dispassionately as possible. I mean, you want to be passionate about what you're doing because it takes over your life, and you want to be dispassionate in how you do it. So that otherwise, how can you have credibility? How can you be seen? By a, writer, by a reader who doesn't know you, uh, may not know your work. Um, you're asking a lot of that reader. You're asking that reader to trust you. You're, you're asking um, on faith. Now, over time, if you write enough books, hopefully, you know, you reach a critical mass of readers who at least have reason to, to believe in you. Duma Malone uh, clearly uh, worshipped at the altar of Thomas Jefferson. It's a remarkable series. Um, it's a definitive in a factual sense. And yet he missed maybe the most important thing about Jefferson. Um, more to the point, and I don't want to beat up on Malone's, but I mean, more to the point, he, I think he dismissed as impossible 
um, knowing what he knew about Jefferson. It, it just didn't square with his lifelong documented portrait. Sim, you're talking about. Are we talking about Sally, Sally Fairfax Hemming. and the and the now more or less I means Sally you, Hemming. Uh, I'm sorry, I've got my founding fathers' affairs mixed up. Yes, <laughs> Sally Sally Hemings, um, who was most people now agree uh, Jefferson's mistress and the mother of multiple children. What about, and, because it's closer to what you've written about, what about James Flexner uh, or uh, Douglas Southall Freeman? Yeah, Flexner is, well, you know, the wonderful thing, Flexner wrote a wonderful four-volume biography of Washington. And I would really urge people, I know it sounds formidable, the, the one volume can't begin to capture the richness. And why? Because Flexner was an art historian. Which means Flexner wrote with his eyes. It's a very visual. You are there. Flexner has. It's one thing to be able to see it. It's another to be able to make others see it. And not only see it, but immerse themselves in it. See, that to me is great biography. Great biography is almost claustrophobic in its intimacy. It's, it's putting you in the room, a small room, with a larger-than-life figure for 700 pages and throwing away the key. Um, the intimacy may be almost uncomfortable. <clears throat> but in any event, <clears throat> that's what... So he painted a portrait of Washington and his times. And, it, and, and unlike Freeman, who again is a marvelous example of a journalist. And from Richmond. From Richmond. The story is, you know, Freeman not only wrote six volumes, he died before the seventh, which was completed by a couple of graduate students. But he also wrote um, uh, four volumes on Lee. He wrote four, I think, four volumes on Lee's lieutenants. I mean, his output was extraordinary. The story goes, I mean, the secret was very simple. He never wasted time. When he visited New York, there were stories of people seeing him on the subway writing. I mean, literally, not a moment was wasted. Um, which is a very old-fashioned, but in any event, uh, admirable trait. Um, his Washington, to my way of thinking, and, and both series, you know, they, they have value his Washington is much less vivid. For one thing, he, for reasons I've never quite understood, um, almost never quotes Washington. And the fact of the matter is, in 1932, there was a, a, a 30 plus volumes, you know, of Washington's papers. And so there was a there was available a very scholarly, reliable uh, set of of Washington's papers. But for some reason. Um, Freeman shied away from that. So I, I, you know, I would recommend to anyone, if, if you've got time and you want a vivid um, encounter with Washington, read, read Flexner. So I've heard you say... By the way, Ron Chernow, I shouldn't forget, contemporary, um, uh, who's also established himself quite 
quite rightly. Well, at the at the you know the sort of the peak of, um, and who who writes great big, exhaustively researched um, books that succeed as literature. I, I actually was about to ask you. Uh, something related to Ron Chernow. I've heard you say that you will not see the Broadway musical Hamilton. Yeah, that's true. I love, as you know, I love Broadway. I love musicals. Hamilton, and you know, I, I, I'm, I, it's only fair that I annotate that with the observation that I have seen, as everyone's seen, it's a phenomenon. And it's a wonderful phenomenon that there are lots of young people who are coming to history through Hamilton. There are people who, who, can, who can sing the lyrics to every song just as I could to Carousel, you know, or My Fair Lady, uh, but for different reasons. So it, it's, it's an intellectual exercise in a way, and that is wonderful. And I, I, I salute the creators of the show. It's simply not my cup of tea. It's as simple as that. What does that mean, though? Hip, hip-hop and um, it's just not, you know, I, I, don't, I don't question it's legitimacy. I don't question its intellectual substance. I'm just talking about as an experience of going to the theater. You know, I go to the theater to escape um, this all too depressing contemporary world in which we find ourselves. Hollywood doesn't make my kind of movies anymore. You know, great big historical epics. Uh, they, they, They don't exist. So... So anyway, um, but but also, um, you know, having gone to a great many Broadway shows over the years, you know, um, and and harboring, I guess you could say, a hobby of following musical theater, you know, you develop tastes and preferences and dislikes. I I, I wouldn't be interested in, in seeing a country western musical uh, for the same reason. It's just you know. It's as simple as that. How good a writer was Winston Churchill? He was an extraordinary writer. Um, I guess technically you'd say he was an extraordinary dictator because he dictated um, most of his uh, major histories. And that's an art form. I I can't imagine dictating um, to someone. I mean, I had to do it for a number of years, obviously, just doing correspondence and other you know, as a library director. Um, and I never got really comfortable with it. But, um, you know, Churchill, who is a Protean figure who I think deserves, um, and in many ways, is the, is the largest figure of the 20th century. Um, he also had a very practical sense you know, he was living hand to mouth, hand to pen. I mean, he was living article to article in the 20s and 30s. Uh, not a wealthy man. He lived through his writing, and um, and he cranked it out. And I have no doubt there's all there's a lot of boilerplate in 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 the accumulated canon. But um, and and there are certainly critics now who read the, for example, the second. World War memoirs as being self-serving and distinctly incomplete. Some of that was left out for political reasons. Remember, he returned to office 
and there were things he couldn't say, or he didn't feel he could say. He things criticism, for example, of his friend Eisenhower that he he was impolitic, and in that sense it suffers. Beyond that, there's a sense that it's a special pleading in some ways. He famously said that he intended to look good in history because he would write the history. And people have taken that at face value. But the, the books still hold up. And above all, they hold up as, as literature. Richard Norton Smith is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.